Hopscotch Podcast, episode 16, Concord, New Hampshire. Calling in on Michael Hopley Pierce at Litherman's Limited. Our next stop is Litherman's Brewery on the south side of Concord. I like the vibe of this place. The outdoor seating makes it a great place to visit. Uh, who is Litherman? I'll get to that in a few minutes. First, I need to tell you about the person that we're meeting. Michael Hopley Pierce, also known as MHP. He's been podcasting since early 2014. He co-hosts a show called The Tap Handle Show. It's chattier and more informative of the New Hampshire and New England scene than we will ever be. He can also sing. Oh, so he knows way more than we do. He's more talented than we are. And he owns a brewery. Why the hell is he meeting plebs like us? You will never find a more informed scribe of beer and brewery. We must be cautious. Are you two done talking like I'm not here? Yeah, sorry. Uh, we like to set the scene before engaging. Understandable. You get around a bit. Oh yeah, for sure. Rob plans some very interesting itineraries. And the plan for today? I, I wanted to buy a few cans of Little Miss Strange for Dominic and I to have later on. Um, from here, we're going to be driving up to Gorham in the White Mountains stopping at the brewery knowing you were here I wanted him to have a quick taste of Litherman's as a whole alright I mean I will admit that over the episodes finding out more about the brewers and breweries it's definitely enhanced my enjoyment I agree that there is much in knowing who is brewing a beer indeed and uh, we know that you are a podcaster and a, a writer about the New Hampshire brewing scene for a while before joining the ranks how long ago did you start podcasting? I was a podcaster for a few years before I started the brewery, um, almost on a lark, on an invitation from a friend who had a couple of really successful business networking podcasts, said we should start a brewing podcast. I know how to podcast. You know how to talk about beer. Let's sort of wonder twin powers and activate this. Uh, I only started writing about beer and beverages about two years ago. I chatted with New Hampshire Magazine about the possibility of sort of turning my podcasting acumen into the written word, which I have been in love with since as early as I could make it. And uh, it's been going really well. I have a lot of fun. I write the Sips column for New Hampshire Magazine, which is their beverage review column. And I occasionally get an opportunity to do more in-depth stuff to write about a, a restaurant or I'm actually today going to write an article about five different New Hampshire beers that I bought at our dear friend Bert's store and um, and review all of those from an at-home standpoint, kind of like a lot of people are going to probably end up doing a lot of their drinking at home. So it seemed like it was a timely thing. So yeah, it's a lot of fun. I, I feel like it was a good opportunity for me to have credibility in the beer world before I had a presence in the beer world, if that makes sense. It, it does. Uh so that you were established before seeking out your own establishment. Yeah, and so then when I went to reach out to people who own bars or, or beer stores or other breweries and try to do collaborations or partnerships or sell or do any of the, the commerce and marketing-related things, it wasn't like I had to go through the whole courting experience. I didn't have to you know, introduce myself and have a dance. Like People knew who I was. They knew mm -hmm. that for a few years I'd done a lot. 
I don't want to say selflessly because I wanted to promote the podcast, but we, we were a promotional engine for the New Hampshire craft beer scene for a long time when it was still sort of nascent and needed that kind of promotion because it wasn't mainstream so much yet. And so people appreciated that I had put in work to help them become successful, I guess. And like with us, there's um, I've published 15 episodes. I know you're at 160-something episodes of Tap Handle. Before I could approach people about really spending time with us on the, the podcast, I had to have something to back up what it was going to look like. Definitely, yeah. Um, and I was, I was fortunate in how receptive the industry was early on. I feel like I, they, were, they were an industry that realized that they could use some free publicity and that once people realized they didn't have an ulterior motive, it was like, okay, this guy just really wants to get our name out there. Where does the name Lithermans come from? So I'm a bunch of different kinds of nerd. One of the kinds of nerds I am is a verbivore, and I love words. I love etymology. I love evolution of phrases. I love uniquities. I love, I love language. It, just, it, it is so expressive, and I feel like it, it bears the soul better than almost anything other than art that we are capable of. So I had a word a day calendar and it was archaic phrases and one of them was a Lithermon's load l-i-t-h-e-r-m-o-n apostrophe s load and it was an archaic phrase from Shropshire mm -hmm. 1850s and it meant a lazy man's load I don't know if that has um, an actual family name origin I don't know the etymology of lither and I probably should dig deeper into that but it stuck with me I had this calendar and probably 2006 or seven. And um, at the time, my business partner and I, Doc Jones, Steve Bradbury, who we call Doc Jones, were just starting a hip hop group because uh, that's clearly what New Hampshire needed, but a uh, libertarian, overly intellectualized, critically Caucasian hip hop group. So we started one. New Hampshire's answer to Rush. Well, yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It, it, we actually built our songs very similarly to how Rush built their songs. I'm not going to lie. I studied their song building process a lot in the in the process of trying to become a musician, which I still haven't done. The modern analog would be when you go to the grocery store and you fill up the car with groceries and then you get to the house and you've got 17 bags. And instead of taking three or four sensible trips, quick trips inside – you try to put every single bag on your thumb, on your arm, on your ear, on your belt loop. You're fighting with the screen door. The cat tries to get out. You drop the keys, and it turns into a much more difficult thing to carry than if you had parsed it into smaller pieces. So that's what a Litherman's load is. And we thought that starting this hip-hop group when you know, we both had families, he's got kids, we both had really busy careers, we were both doing business-to-business -business sales at that point, he was doing pharmaceutical sales management, so we had 17 states, I had four states doing construction sales management, so we were, we were doing a lot of stuff, and we thought that taking on this every couple of weeks, getting together and drinking too much good craft beer, and laying down some hip-hop tracks was this huge Litherman's load to take on, so that's what we named ourselves as a band, was <laughs> Litherman's load. And uh, thankfully, they're very difficult to find. I, I guess you can still find some of that music out there if you look for it. But the main site that we actually hosted all of our music on has since gone defunct, basically due to um, 
obsolescence, I guess. It was a it was a site that was built specifically to host folks that were using GarageBand okay. 15 years ago because it was an immediately accessible platform for people who'd never been able to record anything except maybe on a really garbagey Tascam four track. If you ever had one of those, I, you know, where you had this audio cassette that you recorded on all four tracks at a time, like that was about the only option people had for recording music. My favorite radio series was a show called The Shuttleworths mm -hmm. um, by a gentleman called Graham Fellows. And he recorded that using two cassettes on a four track recorder to give himself mm -hmm. 16 tracks. <laughs> All right. So that was like, the, the first tracks that I laid down with my dear friend Grizz in California in the early 90s. My first hip hop efforts. <laughs> I say efforts. That's what we used was a four-track task cam. So really GarageBand was the first platform for people to use to get outside of that. And um, iCompositions, the website that we used to host on, was the first website that really catered itself to people using that platform. And it was, uh, it, it was almost MySpace-ish. You could create a profile for yourself and you could use pictures, you could use descriptions, you could upload music. And then you could set parameters. So you could decide whether people could or could not comment on your music, whether they could or could not give it a one to five star rating, whether they could or could not download it. And the moderators were almost all industry professionals. So they were mostly recording engineers. So they would they would say, hey, this track sounded really good, but you might want to think about X, Y, Z from a, a technique standpoint. And there were no trolls. So you never had people posting mean stuff like you see on all the social media nowadays. So it was a really cool place to grow. And we, we posted tracks there for like two and a half years, probably 30 or so songs. And we started homebrewing sort of in the background when we had some downtime. And then we stopped recording music and started making beer in the driveway at Doc Jones' house. And we decided to put a musical naming convention behind all of the beers because we had such a musical background. And we changed it to Lutherman's Limited. So that was uh, that was why we, to this day, have 187 beers that have all been named with some kind of a musical convention. And it might be really obscure. It might be a misconstrued lyric. It might be a name of an album or a group or a singer or a rapper. Um, but every single beer that we've done has a musical origin in the name. Sometimes we have to sort of reverse engineer it rarely like we'll come up with a beer and we'll say oh we really don't know what to call this and we'll we'll type some of the the things that are in it into a search engine and see what comes up and be like oh i love that song i hadn't thought about it or i've never heard that song it's perfect but for the most part we understand ahead of time that the the name is going to be the the big piece to catch people's attention and so usually that's the first thing that happens so hip-hop led to home brewing and home brewing led to brewery mm -hmm. one of my absolute favorite go-to beers is Little Miss Strange. I love everything about that. The, it's also worth noting that the artwork that you have on each can is different. I mean, wildly different. Indeed. It's all, yet it's all the same artist. Really? Yeah. Wow. Everything. Everything from the logo to our first website. We had two labels designed by um, two different graphic artists because of uh, situational necessities we had one where steve lee steve lee design our graphic artist his father had passed away and he just needed some time to deal with his life and we had a, a label we had to come out with 
so I had my friend Jim Tyrrell, a musician from the North Country, uh, do the label for Quadra Calabasia, okay. which has subsequently been reworked by Steve Lee just because Steve understands our vibe better than anybody does. And then we did another beer um, made for walking, which is a collaboration with the Pink Boots Society, which is an organization of women in the brewing and beverage industry. Yep. Our, our head brewer, Dropkick is one of the founders of the chapter in New Hampshire, actually Sharon Curley. We call her Dropkick. That's a whole other story. But we decided because it was a such a female-driven project that we really wanted to have a woman design the artwork for that. Mm-hmm. So I invited Rose Lowry to design the artwork for Made for Walking. But once again, in the subsequent iteration, Steve Lee tweaked it to, to be a more tightly Leatherman's. Other than that, he's done every single piece of graphic that you've ever seen from us. And I loved on the side of the top sales can, a bit of verbiage on there from Dropkick about how she appreciates working at Leatherman's. Yeah. Well, so do we have time for the backstory? Do you want do you want a, a two-minute backstory on why that Dropkick is Dropkick? I'm assuming Dropkick has something to do with the Dropkick Murphys. Indeed. So she's a, Sharon is a daughter of a friend of mine who is best friends with a very good friend of mine who I've known for like 20 years. My friend Rebecca said, hey, my friend's daughter would really like to come through and hang out with you guys when we first opened up. I mean, it was just, just my partner and myself. We had no employees, no volunteers. Everything was owner-operator, everything. Manufacturing, packaging, delivering, hospitality, toilet washing, everything. And she said she'd like to come through and just sort of observe and see what you guys do and see what this whole brewing thing is about. And I guess at that point, she was probably mid-20s, late-20s. So we said, yeah, sure, come through. And I honestly forgot because I had so many people that said they wanted to come by and be a part of the experience because having a brewery is sort of a cool thing, I guess. And mm-hmm. most of them never showed up. You know, they were just, they just wanted to sort of check that box in their head, I guess. Well, Sharon came through when I forgot to tell my partner that she was coming through. And she actually got there before I did. So he's like, I don't know what to do with this lady. And then I got there and we were like a... We were like a two-man basketball team at that point, sort of, where we were used to total nonverbal communication. We just did what we did through nods and looks and understanding of process, and we didn't have to have a lot of conversation. So for us to have a third participant was sort of not awkward, but we didn't know what to do. We didn't know how to instruct. We didn't have a set of, of, of duties. We didn't have a SOP. We had none of that stuff. But it, it became apparent to Sharon that music playing while we did the beer things was essential because we're such a musical organization. But because it was my partner's iPod and like me, he's mostly old school hip hop and she's 10, 12 years younger than us with a degree in classical music. There wasn't <laughs> a crossover in what was on the iPod. So the crossover mostly composed of Irish punk. And so we played the entire catalog. She played the entire catalog of the Dropkick Murphys that first night that she hung out working with us and got dubbed Dropkick as a result. That's fantastic. On the the can, I'm a simple girl and I've lost my way. Climbing up the mash tun, I've lost my way. I'm a Leatherman and a brewer, a leather woman brewer. I'm a Leatherman and a brewer. I'm a brewer and I found my way. This beer is dedicated to Doc Jones and MHP for embracing me with encouragement and love even after I made them listen to many, many hours of Celtic punk. <laughs> so this whole series of English-inspired panels are pretty much all Dropkick's brainchild. I won't bore you with the details of 
yeast management, but when you bring in a strain of yeast to do a kind of beer that requires a specific kind of yeast, it makes sense if you can do multiple beers with that yeast or else your cost of goods is really expensive. Mm -hmm. And the strain that we use for most of our English ales, London 2, is, you know, it's a thousand bucks to bring in a pitch, an amount that you can use on a a thousand gallons or 500 gallons. So we try to utilize it on several batches in a row. And that's where we've come up with this whole series of English ales, traditional, really traditional English ales, at least in our opinion, that have all been Dropkick's brainchild and they've all been Dropkick Murphy's inspired. Although I know that's Irish. I don't, don't ask me for the connection. The, that's the whole series of those beers. So we've got Top Sale as the traditional ESB, mm-hmm. Extra Special Bitter, which is one of my favorite styles of beer. Um, we've also got a, a Blonde Ale. We've got a traditional English Porter. Um, we have a barley wine in tanks. Our barley wine that we did a year and a half ago, Big Truck, was actually fermented on the same English ale yeast strings. It's got some nice fruity esters. So there's been a whole series of these, and almost all of the write-ups are pretty much paraphrased Dropkick Murphy's lyrics, like what you just read. <laughs> yeah, I don't listen to uh, like that sort of style of music normally, but uh, when I'm out with Larry, <laughs> when we're doing our Kilted Beer Tours, that's the predominant music that's being played. Why am I not surprised? Because <laughs> you've met Larry. Cheers to Long Island Larry. <laughs> not that he We're listens just, to this either. He moved to New Hampshire just so he could have my beer, which I appreciate. Yeah, I mean, that's pretty much why he was, you know, he turns out the end of his road and you're right there. It's a thing of beauty. Hopscotch! The Hopscotch Podcast is sponsored by Burke's Better Beers. Burt's Better Beers is located close to Exit 9 South off I-93 in Manchester, New Hampshire. We have a large selection of international, national, and local beers, ciders, and meats. Cans and bottles are individually priced so you can select your own beer tour. Tell us how you heard about Burt's Better Beers on Hopscotch. I expect you'll get a smile that is never very far away. Burt's can be called at 603 603- Four one three five nine nine two, on Facebook at www.facebook.com/slash/birdsbetterbeers, or on Twitter at twitter.com/slash/birdsbetterbeer. The opening hours are Tuesday to Friday, ten to eight; Monday and Saturday, ten to seven; Sundays, eleven to three. Birds better beers. Stimulating the economy one beer at a time. The thing of beauty was a phrase I used the other day when I tried that strange love for the first time. Guava Chardonnay. The way that grapes pair with other fruit is just really nice. And so I'm really happy with that beer. That was almost uh, it was an experiment. We hadn't played with all of those ingredients before. We don't have the ability to do test batches, so... When we do a beer for the first time, it's a minimum of 250 gallons and usually 500 gallons. We do not have a 5, 10, 15-gallon <laughs> test system that we can play with stuff on. We're, we're very much more like a chef who understands the ingredients and says, okay, I can throw these things into the mix and I'm going to get a result that I may not know exactly what it's going to be, but it will be good. We're actually in the process of getting artwork done for that because we're going to put that in cans and have labels and it will return for sure because it was super popular. Along the same lines, we've actually got a orange and Riesling 
grape must, because that's what they call mm-hmm. the juice, sour coming out just in time for Christmas. So it'll be a mimosa sour. <laughs> you laugh, but you're gonna you're gonna spend a hundred bucks on it. Uh, fortunately, I don't have my wallet anywhere within your site, so ah. you can't get at it straight away. So, so let's just talk for a moment. And um, strange love, it's a, a guava chardonnay that is amazing. It, it drinks like a wine. I think it's about about what five point two percent of memory serves. Yeah, generally our sours are in the mid fives. So why give that one the name Strange Love? I was honestly grasping at straws. We were at a point where I'm required to register all of my beers with the state because of our licensure. So I have to give them a a name and a category and an ABV and all all kinds of other distribution information. And I had to register it so I could get the approval so we could put it on tap. And I'm a big Depeche Mode fan. Uh, My partner's a big Depeche Mode fan. We actually saw them. And you sing that song so I used to cover that song when I was in Chemical Distance like a decade ago. Um, it's just a really cool song, and I don't I don't know where it came from, but I felt like the the combination of guava and grape was sort of a strange love between the two of them, and so that just sort of popped into my head, and I was like, you know what? I'm not going to second-guess myself and spend an hour and a half with a cigar and a half a bottle of whiskey trying to figure out what I'm going to call this beer. I'm just going to call it the first thing that came to mind, and that was Strange Love. It works. I mean, I, I'm buying more of this. There are times when our crimes will seem almost unforgivable. I give in to sin because you have to make this life livable. That I'm including. (laughs) (laughs) It's probably horribly off key. I just started. Not that I would notice. (laughs) Definitely got some creative names. Could you tell me the origin of Little Miss Strange? So the name comes from a song from Electric Ladyland by mm-hmm. Jimi Hendrix and crew. And it's a song that Jimmy doesn't sing on. It's the bass player singing on the song. He wrote it and he sang it. And Jimmy's just sort of almost laid back in the back like when he was doing Motown. You know, he's not trying to be Jimmy. He's, he's trying to back up the pop singer that's got the microphone. And it's a, a huge departure on the album. It's almost like it's almost like a, a stark left turn on the rest of this psychedelic album where it's this really paisley, cheesy pop song. But I love it. Little Miss Strange came into my parlor. I didn't know just what to ask her. I don't remember what we did after. It's almost like something that the Beatles would have been like, oh, this is too incipient. We can't do this. <laughs> and yet it was perfect. And the first time I brewed it was with my buddy Grizz. My, my boy from California that I used to rap with on the Tascam, he came out from California. And at that point, we still had a test system. So we were doing a five or a 10-gallon batch of a new IPA. And I wanted to do a West Coast IPA because at that point, there was no such thing as New England-style IPAs. This was like four years ago. Um, we had some Azaka and Apollo hops. Uh, at that point, we were still using some Crystal Malt, which we've since pulled out of the recipe to try to dry it out just a little bit. But that's the last IPA recipe that I actually designed for the brewery three, three and a half years ago. The artwork is loosely inspired by both Alice in Wonderland specifically because if you had the English LP of Electric Ladyland, when you opened it up on the inside was a picture of Jimi Hendrix and a bunch of kids in front of the Alice in Wonderland statue in Central Park in New York. And I don't think that's on the American pressing. 
But that was a piece of the inspiration, as was a photograph of my partner, Doc Jones's daughter, when we were still homebrewing and wrapping sort of that brief overlap period. She's holding a 22-ounce bottle, and it's almost as big as she is. You know, it's like Cindy Lou Who from The Grinch That Stole Christmas holding the glass. And all of those were sort of portmanteaued together into this really cool imagery of this sort of wide-eyed young lady in this forest of hops presenting you in green and purple tones with this beer. Everything surrounding that beer is almost the strongest branding that we have, aside from Misguided Angel. And it's a it's a rare beer. We don't make it very often. Misguided Angel? Which is Larry's absolute go-to. You have to say it right. Larry. <laughs> if you ask Larry, nothing I say sounds right. <laughs> That's because he's from Long Island. <laughs> he'll, he'll take your word for it. He won't take mine. He won't listen no. to this. <laughs> so Misguided Angel was something that came to us uh, probably two and a half years after we opened. The beer market was very much shifting. The IPA market was shifting, and there was this whole new thing of – it wasn't even called the New England-style IPA at that point. We had Sip of Sunshine and Hetty Topper sort of bridged the gap between people making dry, clear, crisp, bitter – IPAs and people making sweeter, hazier, softer, more aroma forward IPAs. So like the 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 space between the old school what is now called West Coast mm-hmm. IPA, New England style IPA, I feel like these two New England brewers really created that bridge to to take it from the older style and give an opportunity for people to take it even further and make a newer style. And I don't you know, I know a lot of your listeners are not brewers. A lot of that has to do with water chemistry, and that's how you get the soft mouthfeel versus a crisp mouthfeel. It's also a contributing factor to how you get the haziness versus a clear beer. You know, it would take it would take hours of really boring chemistry to explain how all those things happen. But I feel like those specifically, those two brewers were very much um, John Kimmick and Sean Lawson were very much the the hopscotch point if i might where you could jump to this point and jump to this point and then jump to the next point mm-hmm. sort of come out with this new england style ipa and as soon as we saw that this was happening in other states but wasn't really happening in new england the production team came up with misguided angel it's a softer mouth feel it's not chunky it's not cloudy it's got a mild haze to it so it's not it's not like your trillium style ipa it's not going to be that thick for lack of a better term Mm -hmm. we're once again trying to kind of walk the balance between having the west coast sensibility and the east coast aromatics and and try to sort of bridge that gap between the two but it's it rapidly turned into the favorite beer in the tasting room the first time we made it and it's now over 50 percent of our overall sales really it is an impressive beer i like it given the choice i'll still take a little miss strange if offered the two i would too oh yeah I would too. Nothing wrong with Misguided Angel. It's great. I love it. No. It does exactly what it's supposed to do, both like oh, yeah. economically and uh, flavor-wise. But, but yeah, I love Little Miss Strange. Well, we were in California, so, so I, I kind of understand oranges by the freeway. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. An orange juice beer. I mean, it's almost a breakfast beer. On a weekend, bacon, eggs, sausage, toast, an oranges by the freeway, and then a, a cup of coffee. I'm sold. And a long nap. Indeed. Yeah, we we turned the water chemistry and the dry hop on that one way up. 
compared to a lot of our other New England style IPAs. So it's definitely hazier, juicier, cloudier, more hop forward, more fruit forward. It's it's been very well received. We're happy with it. It's a sublime reference. Um, right now she's selling oranges by the freeway. That's a reference to Ruka from Sublime. But growing up in California, there were always people selling oranges by the freeway. Not so much where I lived because I was more in the Bay Area. But if you traveled, you would start to see where the orange plantations were. Mm-hmm. There were people that worked the farms that got the overage or the spillage or whatever they call it that were selling oranges by the freeway. And you could get great prices on oranges. Even in the Central Valley, you could get strawberries and oranges on the freeway. So that was sort of the inspiration for that song. And then finally, we get to Jeffrey Wears Birkenstocks. So Jeff's a real guy. He works for us. He, <clears throat> he's he been with us since the beginning, since before the beginning. We actually met him through a mutual acquaintance before we actually had bricks and mortar. When we finally had some place to be, he wanted to be there. And I can remember when we rented our first – we have 6,000 square feet right now, but we started out with 1,500 square feet, and it seemed huge. And the first thing we had to do was sandblast the floor in the production area so that we could epoxy it ourselves, obviously. And I hired somebody uh, to come in and sandblast the floor because I had a buddy, that had, Mike Roberts, that had a, a mobile sandblasting apparatus and could come in and do it. And he gave me a, a great price, and it was the smart thing to do. But at the end of it, there was over a 1,000 pounds of blasting media sand <laughs> left over in the space that had to get out. And so I can remember that was one of the first major projects that we tackled at the brewery, and it was Doc and me and Jeffrey. And he's, I'm 46, I would guess he's close to 20 years older than me. He's a, he's a freaking trooper, but he's not a spring chicken. So him lifting shovelfuls of sand to help us get not even open, but just ready to make beer was a, a huge testament to his commitment to what we were trying to do. And he's never left. Um, he's had some health challenges along the way, and at one point he was in the hospital and we designed this beer, and we actually had to change the name of Jeffrey Rice Birkenstocks on the clipboards and all the places that we had the beer name written, so that in case he happened to come through, if he got out of the hospital and saw it, he wouldn't realize that we'd named a beer after him. So I, th- I don't remember what we, George, I don't remember what we called it. We did something different. So the day he got out of the hospital and was able to come out, or maybe the day after, happened to be our canning day, the first day that we were packaging Jeffrey Rice Birkenstocks. And we'd gotten shirts, like you'd mentioned. We have shirts with all of our labels, Shameless Plug, available at litherman's.beer. And we'd all, all the people that were doing packaging that day had shirts the same color of Jeffrey Wears Birkenstock. So he shows up and wanders in, and we haven't seen him in a couple of months aside from visiting him in the hospital. And he's a little oblivious sometimes to things and doesn't notice that we have these labels on our shirts because he has no point of context. He doesn't realize that it's him on the label. Uh, and then... He gets in, you know, into his place and work, and and we get the canning line running, and he starts pulling cans off the line to package them into uh, four packs and put them into boxes, and then put them onto pallets. And at some point, he realizes that the, the dots all get connected, and he looks around and sees not only that is he on the label, but everybody's got him on the label on their shirt, and in addition, on the label are nice little pokes to the bear of things of it in his life. Uh, there's a goat next to his leg. The first day he was officially working for us and was supposed to show up, he was like an hour and a half late because the goats got out at his house. 
<laughs> who who's not late for their first day at work because the goats got out. So there's a goat. <laughs> and then he decided he was going to stop homebrewing because it was an expensive hobby and he was spending too much money. So he got into model rocketry, which is <laughs> expensive. So he's got a model rocket in his hand as well, which says DDH double dry hopped. Um, so there's, there's lots of little tips of the hat in the label art to him and his specific experience with us. So that's, that's the backstory on Jeffrey wears Birkenstocks. He does not wear Birkenstocks. He is a huge Rolling Stones fan, and he probably could not tell you the name of a single song that came out after 1972. So that's why he's wearing a Rolling Stones Mick Jagger shirt. But he does not wear Birkenstocks. He's a, a hippie. He's a liberal that is angry by the fact that he's liberal. I don't know how else to describe him. So the fact that we put him in Birkenstocks was just a nice way to keep him pissed off in perpetuity. <laughs> That's such a better backstory than I had any expectation of. The scary thing is all of our 50 or 60 or 70 labels probably have a backstory close to as interesting, if not as interesting. Just It's it's so hard to compartmentalize all that and put it into 30 words on the back of a can with an image. But a lot of thought goes into everything that we put out. Yeah, thanks for chatting with us. Definitely enjoyed hearing the backstories we'd otherwise miss. No problem. Safe trip, and Rob, I'll see you back here again, I hope. Oh, you will do, and I look forward to it. Cheers. <laughs> Cheers. He's been podcasting things. Lo- known locally as MHP. He's been podcasting things. He's been podcasting things. <laughs> he co-hosts a show called The Tap Handle Show. It's chattier and more informative of the New Hampshire beer scene and, well, the New England scene than we will ever be. He can also sing. First and foremost, let's just take a minute to applaud that you got through the line eventually. Uh, we can start with my line just before your first line. Okay. Which is... We must be cautious. <laughs> is, that a, is that a most icely reference? Well, if you've, <laughs> you will never find a more informed scribe of beer and brewery. We must be cautious. <laughs> You're killing me, dude. Hopscotch! <laughs> Make this. This one episode's about to become two or three. <laughs> but, yeah, I don't shut up. Sorry. That's all right. <laughs> um, that's why you had a 160-episode podcast, and I don't yet. That might take two to three months to put together, because I have way too much attention to detail and when I put stuff together I want it to be unassailable in terms of accuracy so that somebody can't come back later and say ah but in this sentence you said that and that's actually not true because in alright you got me the rest of the episode's null and void as I respect well. that we always took the absolute opposite approach and pretty much treated our podcast as if it was live 
and did zero post-production. Just let everything roll. Uh, I, I would make sure that we didn't have more than a three-second pause any place, just because I know that that's when you lose listenership. But aside from that, I would just interject. I just wouldn't let the mic be dead. But we never went back and did anything with any of our content. So, well, looking at looking at what you had prepared for me, I don't know if you want to pick up anything past that, or if we've got enough stuff to rock and roll with. If we just have you say the um, no problem safe trip line, and then I can kill this recording, and then I, I can tell you the other fun stuff. Back to your early question of where Litherman's came from, the the backstory of Litherman's load is where our catchphrase "How much can you carry?" comes from. So it all traces back to the Litherman's load and carrying too much at a time, and then at the same time saying "How much can you carry?" Like literally, how much beer can you carry out of our tasting room or out of one of the stores that carry us? But at the same time, how much can you carry, metaphorically speaking, and that we're here for you to help you carry that load. So it's we we try to. Try to keep that that thread continuing through any piece of narrative that we have, and we've tried to carry that through to our community involvement as well. It's been a challenge in the last six months. We had a we actually had a lot of projects planned that we had to uh, scrap because of circumstances um, as far as fundraising opportunities for charities that we are involved with or care about. But we're trying to find creative ways. When we did our build out a couple of weeks ago. Uh, we sold sponsorships for bar stools for the Coalition Against Sexual and Domestic Violence. They have a shelter in Concord, the, the um, Southern New Hampshire. I can't remember the name of the acronym, but it's a, it's the crisis center in, in Concord that services women and women and children that are suffering from domestic violence and sexual violence and need someplace to be safe. And obviously they need money all the time because it's just it's a. Uh, it's a much bigger problem than you or I might ever imagine being good human beings. But we were able to raise over $2,000 just by selling sponsorships for bar stools for people that want to have a little plaque uh, on my bar that says I sponsored this bar stool for the, the women's crisis shelter. So it's, I feel like it, how much can you carry? Like I did all of that on top of doing all of the, the construction and it, it was a, something that could have easily just been sort of brushed away and said, I need to focus on getting the space open, getting us ready to turn some dollars, but you have to, you have to take a bigger view than that, in my opinion. And so we've tried as hard as we can to be involved with um, well, probably a dozen charities, but the, there's a few that we were really involved with. We're very involved with the, uh, the coalition and sexual and domestic violence. We're also very involved with the coalition and homelessness because um, I feel like those two causes are tied closely together. We're also really involved with CASA, which provides uh, court advocates for children that are stuck in the system, sort of for lack of a better term, these kids that have no grown-ups that care about them or that have their best interest at heart, uh, and they're dealing with court processes, which are heartless. And I mean, they're supposed to be. They're going to be efficient, but they have no room for a nine-year-old little girl that has no grown-up to express what she really needs and how to really get her what she needs. And so we're very involved with CASA. Um, there were the causes and there's, you have to, you have to do this. You have to take your opportunity in the sun and share it with people who don't get that light. I don't know how else to say it. Yeah. It's, it's essential. If you're in a position 
to do the right thing, I, I feel like there is a burden upon you to do the right thing. And I was fortunate the last job I had, which I had for a decade, my boss was a great guy. Um, and he always encouraged me to use my loud, obnoxious, unignorable voice in ways that could help people that didn't have a voice as long as I was making money at the same time. So I, I feel like it's just, it's something that we need to do and there's not enough businesses that take that standpoint. 